Three Board Games Podcast. My name is Tom Chick, and I'm not playing Mage Knight. And my name is Mike Pullman, uh, and I'm not playing Catan. No one is, Mike Pullman. That game is outdated. It is obsolete. Uh, actually, real quick, where do you fall on the Catan sucks uh, issue? Um, I have played Catan maybe once in the last year. It is an okay time for the first half hour, and then I get bored and want it to be over. I, I, that can go on the box, an okay time. Yeah, I feel that that's about right. Exactly. So we're going to be doing this, Mike, every couple of weeks. Um, I feel it's important. You're not just some random guy who plays board games, though. You've got some bona fides. So by way of me mentioning these bona fides, let's just say I'm in the Denver area. I'm looking for a place to maybe buy a board game or, more importantly, a place to kind of hang out in a cool room and play board games. Where should I go? So my wife and I uh, own the uh, local Gaming Goat store there. Uh, Gaming Goat is a franchise. Uh, we have one in Littleton, which is a suburb in southwest uh, Denver area. Mm-hmm. Uh, open in October. And we sell games and have a lot of free games to play, demos, rooms you can rent. So this is my uh, my new career path I'm trying out. And you are that, – that would mean you are far more professional at this than me. I'm the layman here on this podcast. Yeah, although ironically, you probably have more time to play games than I right, do. Right, right. <laughs> I don't. I don't have to deal with like invoices and overhead, and yeah, I don't have to be anywhere to open at you know 9 a.m. or whatever. Oh, right. right. <laughs> well, what we're going to do, Mike, is we're going to talk about the games that we have played in the last couple of weeks, and then we're going to talk about the games that we're looking forward to playing in the next couple of weeks, and then you guys can come back and listen in two weeks and uh, find out if we actually did play what we wanted to. Um, before we do that, though, Mike, you have done a great job listing new games that have come out uh, in, in the thread at quarter to three. Uh, is there anything that's that's out now that's caught your eye, like any new releases that have caught your eye? So one that's coming out this week that I'm interested in is called uh, Blackout Hong Kong. Oh, uh, right, right. Yeah. A little bit of buzz, and that's finally coming in this week. So I'm looking forward to trying that out, or at least looking at it. You know the complaint about that? What's that? Uh, that the artwork looks terrible, that it looks like, and I agree with this, if you look at uh, pictures of the game, it looks like a prototype. Uh, reminds me of um, the original versions of Pandemic, just lines and boxes. And... Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, and I think with a name that evocative, and this idea that Hong Kong is plunged into a blackout and all these criminal factions are vying for control, you would expect something a little bit sleeker and tech noir maybe or more stylized um, right. but a friend of mine who was really enthusiastic about it his enthusiasm was cooled by uh, the visuals now you know if you're a graphics whore that's fine uh, but I think most of us would agree it's it's really the gameplay will be what makes or breaks it uh, so it's also an iteration of something isn't it Mike like there was a blackout colon something or isn't isn't this uh, another version of a game not one that I knew of. That's okay. interesting. Yeah, I'm looking I mean, at Board Game Geek, and I don't. This, this is the same designer who did Great Western Trail, but nothing else I see on here. It might be that the idea is that it's themed that because he might have said something about there being more of them. But for some reason, I got some idea that we could maybe see one day, you know, a blackout Los Angeles or a, a blackout Paris. Uh, gotcha. So yeah. All right. So that's this week, and that's not a solitary game. That's not co-op, right? That's strictly head-to-head. Correct. That is okay. not co-op. All right. 
So, okay, so what things we have played in the last couple of weeks? It's, it's been the holidays. You mentioned that you've uh, been traveling. It's hard to travel with board games. Uh, so I'll, I'll go first and tell you something that I played that I actually got for Christmas. Uh, I am a huge fan of Martin Wallace. I uh, uh, One of my top five games of all time is, is Study an Emerald for how the scoring and the idea of teamwork is unique in that game. It forces you to make guesses about different players' identities and then help or hinder them, and even the people on your team you're fighting against. It's a unique interplayer dynamic and i feel that that's something that martin wallace does very well i recently bought an older game of his called struggle of empires which is from i think like 2005 way back in the olden days and in struggle of empires it's set during the colonial era and one player is is britain and another player is spain and another player is russia and you're fighting for control of europe and the colonies and it, it takes place over three big massive turns in which you do different moves and you fight wars and whatnot. But at the beginning of every turn, you bid on pairs of players who are on different alliances. So that if you had five players, if you and I, Mike, were, were two different players, I could, during the bid phase, say, okay, I'm bidding five gold to put me on one team and you, Mike, on the other team. And what that'll mean is over the next uh, round over the next war, the next long term, of which there are only three, you and I can't attack each other. Uh, our stuff ca cannot, like, you could be fighting me for control of the Caribbean, but if it gets bid in such a way that you and I are on the same team, we can't fight each other. Uh, and it's Thanks. basically forced alliances that other people set using bidding. And you do rounds of bidding where people propose a pair where you go on this side, I go on that side. And then the next player bids, okay? Well, I want John to be on this part of the alliance and Richard to be on that part. And eventually you get three people on one side, two people on the other, and that's locked in for one-third of the game. Uh, so that's a unique uh, yeah, interesting player. And I, I actually haven't played that one, I'm afraid. But okay. what I – what I did play, and it reminds me of Martin Wallace's whole conceit with this weird tension between cooperating and competing. Uh, an old classic of his, Brass, has been reissued as Brass uh, Birmingham. There's, there's Brass Lancashire, which I think is the original design, slightly tweaked, and Brass Birmingham, which I think is a more straightforward update. I forget, but I've got you – know, I should look it up here. I've got Brass Birmingham. But the black or the white box? Bl uh, you know what? What's really weird, Mike, is it depends on the side. If you play one side, it's night, and if you play the other side, it's day. Oh, okay. Oh, I, so, I, I was talking about the box itself. Yeah, yeah so I don't remember the box itself. You know, It's Birmingham, so it is yep. a white box? Yep. Yeah, because yep. there's, there's – so here's the difficult thing, Mike. It's black on the bottom but white on the top. <laughs> <laughs> so – so anyway, I've never played – I played Brass a long time ago, and it's one of those games where I don't feel you can really understand what's going on until you start playing and do it wrong, at which point you realize, oh, here's how it, it, it works. Because there are a lot of games like that where you can only learn so much by being told how it plays, and the rest you have to pick out up by, by actually playing it and seeing how the pieces interact. And Brass is like that. Um, so I, I got to play Brass, and it has that weird, interesting dynamic amongst players where we are 
both simultaneously and overlappingly helping and hindering each other. It does a weird thing with the economy where you put something down on the board and it's kind of an economic engine builder in a way. You put something down on the board and it generally comes with resources and those resources you will need to build other stuff. You know, I put down a coal mine, that's because I want that coal to build an iron foundry or a cotton gin. However, other people can easily take my coal, which sucks because I wanted it. So what Martin Wallace does is when I put down a coal mine and put three little pieces of coal on it, my overall objective isn't necessarily to use that coal, it's to have that coal be used. Because the moment the last piece of coal comes off of that mine, it flips over and gives me points. So putting it down for the resources, that's part of its function. But its main function, arguably, is for me to do whatever it takes to get that coal off of there, whether I use it or someone else uses it. Uh, and then the tile flips, and now it's giving me points. And all of the little economic pieces basically play that way, is you plug them in and you hope that they benefit someone to the degree that you then flip the tile and now you're scoring it. Uh, and if you use it yourself, you can have your own little economy set up over here. Uh, but if you put things down in the middle of someone else's economic chain to where they're going to use the resources, you're helping them by giving them the resources, but they're helping you by making the tile flip over and give you points. Very so it's a weird economy too because there's – uh, in order to sell cotton and pottery, you need to provide beer to because the workers who push the canal boats. There's a rationale for, for why beer and pottery and cotton are, are so important here. Uh, so in that regard, it's a weird economy. But more importantly, it's a weird economy for how the resources and players uh, interact. Um, so have you never played a brass game? I have not. It's been one I've been very interested in. I'm uh, looking at pictures of it now. Um... Do you actually connect the different locations? It's very much uh, a like a train, not a train builder game, but it's very much about setting up networks. Okay. And I'm yeah, thinking of, of you know the old game Empire Builder, right, where you're drawing your little railroads and trading. Goods it, and stuff it, like. Yep. It, it, there's there's a lot of that in that. Uh, yeah. In that you. But there's also similarly that tension of helping each other and hindering each other. If I build railroads, Mike, you benefit from my railroad connections every bit as much as I do. However, yeah. if I build them, the points I score for the railroad have to do with the level of industry around that railroad. If I just build it off in the corner, it's not going to help anyone, and therefore it's not going to get me many points. But if I build it over here where you've got all your coal mines and your cotton gins, and, if, and it helps you – get your goods to the market and it helps you supply coal to your iron foundries i'm going to get a lot of points from it sure but you are going to benefit from that networking that i've set up for you to use uh and yeah it's very much like that martin wallace's uh another recent game of his a kickstarter which i don't think is very good is called Ausdrelia with a z instead of an s because there's like a horror zombie conceit um but it's the same similar thing where you're setting up a rail link along a board uh, and how well you do your rail link is a, a big part of how well you do in the game. And, and that you can clearly see that element going back to brass. Um, so brass is super successful though. I imagine like you, do you have you sold any copies of brass that you oh, know of? We, we always uh, sell out of it actually. And it's uh, occasionally hard to get back in. Yeah. And I think, there. yeah, I think there's a reason for that is just looking at it. I, I was like, okay, this is unique. I can see why it's special. This, and this also is why partly why I imagine 
people sat up and noticed Martin Wallace way back in the day when it when it first came out. So uh, yeah, so uh, Brass Birmingham, I got in one play. Uh, I'm looking forward to playing that more. It was a gift I got for Christmas, uh, and I was super delighted to discover it. Did you get the uh, the fancy tokens for the game? The iron mm. clays? No, quit making me feel bad. What are these? What fancy tokens are these? So it replaces all the, I think it's the money tokens, the circular ones. Oh, yeah, because uh, they're crappy little cardboard punch-out yep, things. These are big, solid, uh, I think they're actually made out of clay. So. Okay, I'm going to, and now I'm not just saying this for sour grapes, Mike, but... I don't like metal coins. I don't like heavy coins. Like I, I feel like it's it's gonna, and maybe it's just because I'm I'm a little uptight, and I'm not like super uptight, but I feel like it's gonna you know pockmark the board or bend a card or something. Like <laughs> I, I don't want my coins to be too hefty. Clay sounds like it could be cool, but when people talk about yeah, it's got metal coins, I'm like you know count me out. I don't want any metal pieces banging around on the tabletop near my boards. Uh, I've heard of the box for these things is pretty heavy, so you may not like them. <laughs> so. Well, yeah, I'm just going to decide then, therefore, no, I don't want them anyway, so I'm glad I didn't get them there. <laughs> Very good. All right, what's something that you've played in the last couple of weeks? So with holidays, it was a little weird. I mostly played right. kind of smaller and quick games. Um, the first one I mentioned is called The Mind. Oh, my God. Oh, I'm already good. Have you played uh, this, Tom? Not only have I not played it, I refuse to play it. If so, I will ki- I'll play Catan. You might even get me, just out of curiosity. It's such a relic to play Monopoly. But the mind, I, I know what it is, and I, you're going to have to tell people, I just do not see the appeal, and I would just I would run screaming from the room if someone proposed this. What is this mind thing, Mike? So it's a very easy idea. There's a deck of cards, uh, number one through 100, <laughs> a couple other extra cards to track lives, and then there's these throwing stars, uh, which mm-hmm. give you a little bit of help. Uh, but the idea is you deal cards. In the first round, each player gets one card. Uh, and for the rounds, round two, you get two cards and so on. And it's just going to be a random number from one to 100 that it's on yep. my card, right? Yep. Okay. And then the whole idea of the game is you as a group need to play these cards sequentially without talking. So there's a little bit of interpretation of how much communication we want to allow from none at all to, you know, kind of looks at each other, but you're not supposed to discuss or talk or say anything mm-hmm. as you're playing. So you have to kind of figure out how you're going to do this without playing the cards out of order when you don't know what everyone else has. Mm-hmm. And as you get, as you've played a few games, there's, there's some tricks to it in that you know if someone has the number one card, as soon as the game starts, they're going to slap it down immediately, right? So right. you can kind of guess the timing of when cards are going to be played in that way. Right. How quickly, like, if some, how eager is someone to get a card out there, for instance? Right. right. And if they're holding 100, you know, they're not going to play it for anything. Exactly. So then there's the... And, and, and naturally, like, someone who has a 20 will be more eager than someone who has a 60. Right. Right. So then uh, if someone plays a card and you happen to be holding one that was lower than their card, you have to say, you know, you say stop and you lose one of your lives and then you continue on. And then... Uh, you continue on with new cards? Like, does that scuttle that round? You just lose one of your lives. Oh. Uh, you, you throw away the cards that were out of order, and you continue the round. So, um, and then every so often you'll earn these throwing stars, which you can decide as a group to use just kind of by pointing at them. Uh, what that lets you do is every player gets to discard their lowest card to kind of pare down their hand. It's the idea that one player points at it, because you're not supposed to talk, so one player points at a pointing star, and what, do people shake their heads or nod? Or how, yep, how or, does... or, or thumbs up. Okay. And then, um, so then the first round's generally pretty easy. And then based on the number of players, uh, like with four players, you're supposed to go up to eight rounds. 
Uh, so without eight rounds meaning everybody has eight cards. Eight cards, correct. That's impossible. That is that is physically impossible. Mathematic. That's like trying to win the lottery. How could that ever? How many lives do you have? Uh, you start out, I think, with four. It's based on the number of players. I think with four players, we had three lives. And then you, as you get past certain rounds, you earn more of those throwing stars to help out a little bit, too. Uh, we only played once, and we got up through round four. So it was, a, it was an interesting idea. Um, you know, it's something that's it's a small game. You can just throw in a in your luggage or bag or stuff to play on the road. Or, um, But... Yeah, it's it's a very strange idea for a game. It's really popular, and it was out of print yeah. for a while and just came back. So, so what what drives me? I mean, so I'm intrigued by the idea, Mike. But I just it feels like it would be so completely random, and this limit on communication. Like, are people making expressions? Like, what? Like, can I scowl or? That's, when we played, we kind of did you know the look like you know shrug your shoulders like I can't possibly play now or. And does the game say – so here's the thing about – in a lot of co-op games, uh, and especially with trader mechanics, they're very explicit about you can talk about this, but you can't talk about that. For instance, if you have an identity card face down, the rules might say you can say nothing regarding your identity card, or you can't reference it. Or um, So I, I think the rules to games like this that have a cooperative or competitive element with hidden information, I always feel that rules should be super specific about what you can and can't say. Battlestar Galactica is a, a, a very famously successful co-op game, and when players are resolving these crises, they play cards from their hand that are secret. You're not supposed to show everyone what cards you're putting into the kitty to help resolve the crisis. But what the rules say is that you're allowed to say, I can help a little, or I can help a lot, or I can't help at all. Like it offers you these three options for things you're allowed to say. You can't say, oh, I can put in two points, or oh, I can put in five points. It just gives you these general categories that you're allowed to say, right. which is kind of weird, but it, at least it's explicit. So in this idea of the mind that there's no – that you can't – that it wants to limit communication, I imagine that the idea, and maybe it's the point of the game, is that certain types of communication evolve anyway over the course of the eight rounds. Is that what's going on? That's what seems to happen, and actually the the rules, you know, said specifically specifically you can't talk, mm-hmm. and you can't make uh, hand gestures showing like what number you have or things like that. Okay. But beyond that, didn't have a lot of guidance. So before I even played the first time, I went to Board Game Geek and was looking up this very question. Mm-hmm. Oh right. And I, found, and I found an answer from the designer, and he said that when he plays, uh, you know, people tend to give looks and you know a lot of shrugging shoulders and kind of you know body language cues. Uh, but that it's it's up to the group how much they want to allow or not allow. You know, some groups, that's blank faces and no words and nothing. And then at that point, it's strictly a game of timing. You know, it, to some point, you can just, you know, the round starts and you can just count to 100 in your head, right? And when you hit number 37, I put down my card. Right, yeah. You would win every time. Clock, if, right. Yeah. As long as everyone's counting at the same speed, which is not necessarily going to happen. But Mike, you've solved the game. The mind is no longer playable. <laughs> is is that do the rules say you can't do that? No, it actually um there's this little spoiler section on the rules saying, you know, this is you should figure this out on your own and don't read this unless you played it before. <laughs> and it says it's about, you know, it can be done as a timing game, although you should do it as a general sense of time rather than counting. Right. Oh, I don't I mean it seems like the whole point of the game is 
this idea of working out this kind of communication and this, this shared language for when to play and how to play and I guess I can appreciate that but I just it's just the sort of thing that I would have no desire to play. Uh, yeah, and uh, it was a game that uh, I hadn't had since we opened because it was out of print for a while. Mm-hmm. But I knew a lot of people asked for it, so I was like, it was you know this like seven or eight dollar game. So I was like, oh, I'll pick it up and I'll try it. So it was interesting as a curiosity. I doubt it will get out very often, other than maybe just as a a palate cleanser game before something bigger. <laughs> now, who did who did you play it with? Like, yeah, I know that you play a lot of times with uh, your wife, and I, did you say your sister? But you yeah. have a regular group. Did you play it with them? Were there children involved? What kind of group did you try this with? Um, it was with, uh, it only supports four people. So it was with mm-hmm. three other adults, but it was with uh, my wife and then two people that were visiting for the holidays. So people you knew pretty well, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I just, yeah, I because I, I, it's a fascinating idea, but good lord, I just don't. I'm the, I'm gonna be the naysayer. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, all right, the mind. Uh, well, I've played something that doesn't require you to read someone's mind. Uh, where should I say? Okay, so when you post these, uh, the the new games that are out on any given week. I, I look at them, and I look at the names of them, and of course, does the box art jump out at me or not? That's one of the things I love about you posting the, the covers. And then I'll go to Board Game Geek and maybe read a little bit about some of them that are intriguing. Uh, I, I love solitaire board gaming. So a lot of times that also means co-op board gaming. Uh, so a lot of co-op board games work just as well solitaire. So one that came out, um, I think maybe last week, was called Metal Dawn. Now, it's a goofy name. The box cover looks kind of goofy. But then you read about it, and it's a co-op game where uh, robots, there's a robot apocalypse, and (laughs) robots are uh, rampaging across the city, and they're going to take over the world, and you have these agents with special abilities and equipment and weapons, and they're holding back the robots. So it sounds to me like a kind of you know, the basic pattern is pandemic for a lot of these games, where a bunch of stuff comes out on the board and you've got to hold it back. It's like hold back the tide to win the game. And that's super cool for me when it's themed well. So this idea of robots rampaging through, uh, you lay out face-up cards representing different locations. Like this one's set specifically in Washington, D.C. So there's the White House, there's the Lincoln Memorial, there's the Washington Monument, there's Capitol Hill. Uh, each of these is a location that does something. And the robots are trashing it, and your agents are trying to stop it. So I'm like, yeah, I'm on board for that. Just a way to uh, you know, chuck some dice and, and have units fight each other. And, oh, no, the White House got wiped out. And, you know, these days, that's the sort of thing that I – that's a, that, that would be a fantasy of mine. Sure, have giant robots come and wipe out the White House. So I ordered this, Mike, and uh, it is garbage. Really? It is utter garbage. And this is – This should teach me not to get games unless they're by people who I know or publishers who I know or people with credits. So here's what I think happened with Metal Dawn. The publisher is a group called Everything Epic. And they did the big trouble. They did a big trouble in Little China themed game. So obviously they got that license. Uh, They've they've just released a game called uh, I think Coma Ward. Which I'm not yep. entirely sure what that is, but uh, but and, and so Metal Dawn is also something that they did, and it was a Kickstarter that they did, and it was one of those Kickstarters that, 
you know, the super successful ones like Tainted Grail just closed with over $5 million. Like, that's, I think, what every Kickstarter for board game, that's what they're kind of chasing. That's what they hope for. Metal Dawn didn't do that. They basically closed at, like, 10% over what they asked. They didn't they didn't double their ask, and, you know, maybe they were asking low. But what, what I think happened is they didn't make as much money as they planned or as they hoped, and they just bunted. Uh, or punted, or whatever the sports metaphor is for not trying very hard. They uh, and the the components are super cheap. The game is just rife with, and not just not just spelling errors, but gameplay printing errors. There are icons in there that were culled from the design, where the designer posted on Board Game Geek. Someone would ask, hey, "What is this icon with the soldier and the arrow?" And the designer posted, "Oh yeah, that's that's not part of the game anymore." And nothing about, I don't know how that made it into the final run. Uh, there are dual-sided pieces where you're supposed to use either side, where one side has a certain bit of information, and another side has contradicting information. And it's a standee, so whether it's facing you or not, it can be one of two different things. That's a printing error. Uh, there are all kinds of printing errors where you have pieces which have hidden information, so the pieces should be uniformly printed, but some of them are considerably darker than others. I know that those drones that are the dark gray, oh, that's the four, whereas the light-colored drone yeah, that's the one in the two. Uh, and just just uh, spelling errors in the manual that would be caught with one simple read-through. Like, I don't know how that sort of thing happens. So I also have no hope for any sort of balance or tuning. Uh, they shipped with, and this was a stretch goal that they met, uh, an expansion which adds extra agents and alternate uh, robots that you fight. Um Presumably, you can play without the expansion, but the way the instructions tell you to set up your agents, it is literally impossible to play a four-player game unless you include pieces from the expansion. And how they did that, like, how do you make a game where it's literally impossible, where you don't have the pieces to play with four players? How do you miss that? Uh, is it advertised on the box as being four-player? Yep, it is. But here's the thing. The box comes with the Tech War expansion. Uh, oh, okay. So it basically, it, it seems like the sort of thing where they just, rather than make the game support four players, they knew they were doing the expansion. So they're like, ah, whatever. We'll just count those as core pieces. Uh, it's, it's just a sloppy oversight for how they're specifying what's base, what's core. Uh, and there's no real rules, too, for how to how to integrate them. Um and it just – I'm just so disappointed. Like I, I look at this and I think – and maybe this is just armchair designing. But you know, if you'd given me one evening with this game and a red pen before it went to the printer, I feel like there's some stuff that could have been salvaged here. And there's some good ideas, and I like the dynamic locations and the powers. And uh, there's this idea too that you have to hack – uh, a giant robot like there's a phase one and phase two and phase one you're fighting little robot soldiers and you're building towards a phase two where they're going to beam the giant robot boss onto the map and you hack this satellite so you can see the first few moves the giant robot is going to make and that's a cool idea is that you stretch out phase one with fighting to to set what the robot is going to do. The longer you take with phase one, and therefore the more at risk you put your agents and your assets and the map, the more you know about what the big robot is going to do. That's a cool risk-reward mechanic. Um, so there's some cool stuff in here, but the actual production value and the quality assurance 
utter and complete garbage. And the designer has, uh, he was answering questions for, I think, about a week after it came out. He's since, it's been a couple of weeks, he hasn't posted anything in the the, the forum uh, in terms of questions that folks are raising. And that just it just makes me so mad. Like I paid, you know, fifty, sixty dollars for what could have been a cool concept, and simply because the designer, it seems like he didn't care, didn't have enough time, or they didn't make enough money to justify the time. It, they just released garbage, and I just am so disappointed when I run into that. And that happens from time to time. You know, that's yeah. that's the risk you take with Kickstarters sometimes. Did so. Kickstarted or just buy it? Now? No, I didn't. I saw it. That's the thing is, I saw it came out, and I was like, yeah, this looks cool. I don't want to blame you, Mike, but it was it was in the list of things that you said that were released, and yep. some of them catch my eye, so I look into them a little bit more, and it was one of those. And so I bought it from Miniatures Market, which obviously did a retail buy-in from the Kickstarter campaign. So they had a few copies for sale, and I bought it from them. If I had bought this from Amazon, which I'll do for a lot of my board games, I would have returned it. There, there are very few times that I've returned something on Amazon, but after breaking this game down and looking at the pieces and taking notes and scratching my head over, wait, how does this work, and seeing how unresponsive the designer was on Board Game Geek, I put everything back in the box. I went to Amazon.com to click on Return My Order and then realized, oh, whoops, I got it from Miniatures Market. I can't return it. Right. Um, so, no, I didn't kickstart it, and, and it's on me, really, for not reading the rules more closely and not looking at other stuff the designer had done. And even if I'd gone to the forum on Board Game Geek and seen that the guy had sort of stopped responding to complaints and questions, that was on me for not doing more research and uh, just blindly, naively going in and thinking, yeah, cool idea. So uh, if, I can, if I can warn anyone off of uh, Metal Dawn, then my work here is done. <laughs> I feel that is a common problem with Kickstarters that don't go bananas. Exactly. You know, they have this plan, you know, we're going to do this game with all these features, but oops, we didn't get funding, so we can't actually do it. And then they scramble to throw something together that's actually playable. And I think that's part of the strategy, too, for where do you set your target? Like, do you set it low enough to make in hopes that, you know, you really need more money to do to do justice to your design? Uh and, and hope that you're going to go above that? Or do you maybe set it too high so that people are reluctant to support it because they think you won't meet that goal? And it's just it's part of the calculus of Kickstarter that some games like Metal Dawn get hung up on. Yeah. Yep. So, okay. all right, so uh -huh. Metal Dawn. And actually, I have to sheepishly admit, I haven't actually played it. <laughs> so um, so I actually, before I, before I railed against it, I really should get it out. I mean, it's it, do, you, do you ever feel, Mike, that, you look into a game or you read the rules and you're like, yeah, I don't need to play that. Or, yeah, I get a sense for how this should go. I always feel guilty when I get that feeling, but sometimes I do. Does that, does that happen to you? Like you you read the rules for something and you're like, yeah, I know everything I need to know. Yeah, and you know, I before I ever introduce games to anyone, I always get all the components out and set it up for myself anyway just so I can learn it with, you know, with the tactile pieces in front of me and so on. Uh, which is funny because the other game I was going to mention, I kind of did the same thing. I haven't actually played it yet, <laughs> which is... Uh, Railroad Inc. Oh, yeah, yeah, that looks lovely. Wait, is it the so, one? Describe it to me, yeah. So it's a little box. Um, comes with these little dry erase uh, boards, cardboard boards that are kind of glossy. Uh, and then you have some dice that have railroads and uh, roads on them uh, that you that you roll. And you're trying to build this. So every, every round you roll these dice, there's four of them. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you get a piece. It might have, you know, a right angle or a straight one or a road and a railroad crossing each other and then you have to add those to your board which i think is 
five by five squares, if I remember correctly. Oh, that's and tiny. You're to, and you're trying to connect uh, the different every every section of the grid has either a railroad or a road coming in it. You're trying to make complete lines across. And the more connections you have, the more points you get. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty simple. Um, there's two versions of it, a uh, red and a blue. Uh, the core game inside the each is the same, but then each comes with an expansion. So Are they, uh, they're different expansions. Yep. Wait, yep. what? No. So I have to buy two copies. <laughs> Wait a minute. I guess that's like the Pokemon games where there's Pokemon yep. Blue. Po well, what, what's the? Oh, that would. Which color did you get? Uh, I got the blue one, and I, you know, I only looked at the basic rules. I haven't even looked at the expansions yet. Uh, each one has two sets of optional rules. You know, they call them expansions, but really it's just optional rules. But you would need components for them? Like, if I were to just read the PDF of the rules for blue, and I had a copy of red, I'd be able to play the uh, Nope, it has extra dice. Okay. Those. So it has the core dice for the main pass, and then there's some add-on dice for the, the extra rules. Uh, and then each one, I believe, supports five people. Oh, six people. Oh. Uh, so then if you have both sets, you can actually play 12 players. Because then everyone will have their own little board. Is there? What's the interaction that you're... That you have with uh, the other it's, people? It is strictly a roll and score. There's no direct interaction. Okay. So it's everyone's playing solitaire and then comparing at the end. So okay. and then you can you can obviously play solo too, just for your own points. Uh, uh, it, it it what does it actually look like? Like what are the visuals like? Is is it just a grid and a dry erase marker? Um. So it's the the boards are like I said they're this glossy. Actually, it's seven by seven. I just counted the square. A little bit more room, okay. Yep. Um, and then in the middle of the board, there's a square, a nine square area, where you get extra points for building through that because it's more difficult to go through the center than just skirting the edges because mm -hmm. you'll have conflicts in what pieces you have available to you. Uh, and then at the top, it shows you all the available pieces, so you can put a little mark on there of which just got rolled, and then as you use them, you have to sit there and look at the dice all the time. I see, right, I'm looking at it now, so it definitely is like a little tile puzzle kind of thing. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, very casual. Um, I I, uh, I wanted to try it out. I actually haven't yet. I looked at the rules. We just don't have time to try it yet, but uh, I will be trying that soon. How do you feel about this blue-red divide? I, you know, what's funny is they have different ratings on Board Game Geek. Looks like the blue one's a little bit better rated. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I assume the expansion rules in that one are a little bit better. <laughs> so... Um, but I, I do like the idea that, um, you know, it's the same game. You essentially are buying another copy for more players. And, oh, and you also get some new rules to try out. Oh, that would, I, I as a completionist, I, that would make, that would make me angry, Mike. I, I would like, no, why can't you give me, I, I don't know how I feel about that. Have, so, have you heard uh, about the newer games like uh, Discover Lands Unknown that have random components in them? Boy, you want to talk about utter trash. <laughs> I cannot discover land unknowns. I loathe that, and I, I bought that. I, I, I loathe their approach because because discover land unknowns. Now this is Fantasy Flight, and they yeah. have this cool idea that uh, each box will have different kinds of components. So you'll have like a unique adventure in your box. But what Discover Land Unknowns does is it clearly, blatantly, obscenely hobbles any replayability because of how the components are limited. Like, it is a worst-case scenario of this approach. Let's have different boxes of stuff. 
their excuse, what Fantasy Flight says, is so that we can offer people different experiences. But their business rationale, and you can see this clearly if, if you just play it once, uh, you can see clearly their business rationale is they want you to buy additional copies of it. Or what you could do, and actually if I liked the gameplay, and it's pretty basic survival gameplay, walk to this hex, and if you don't have enough food or if you get attacked by animals, you're dead and you have to start over. Uh, but if I liked the gameplay, I could see it being an intriguing experiment in terms of I, I buy my copy, I play it, and then I trade with someone else's copy. Right. Um, and I love that idea, but I clearly just from looking at how little replayability there is in the box – Fantasy Flight intends for you to get additional copies through trading, through buying, uh, and that, you know, the Railroad Inc. Uh, sounds relatively innocent compared to what Discover Lands, Land Unknown does. Right, yeah, and, uh, and what I heard of Discover Lands Unknown is that it's a not very good version of Seventh Continent, which is a game I have and I played. You have, oh, I'm so jealous, so they just, I, did I tell you about my Seventh Continent thing? No. Yeah, so I kickstarted that because I love the idea, co-op exploration game with cards, and there's persistent, I guess, decks or whatever. So I kickstarted it, and you know, when I kickstart stuff, I want it as soon as it comes out, and I, I put myself down for the first wave, and I waited, and then I started getting updates about, yeah, the wave is shipping. And I was like, okay, cool, I'm going to just try not to think about it till my copy arrives. And my copy didn't arrive for a while, so I went onto the, the forum on Board Game Geek, and I was looking up. People were saying, yeah, okay, I got my copy. And a few people were holding out, like, okay, I haven't gotten my copy yet. Uh, and then those people started getting their copies. And then there were no more messages with people saying, yeah, I haven't gotten my copy yet. And there was no more traffic on these, hey, I got my copy threads for like a week. I was like, well, where, where's mine? So I contacted the shipping company, and I was like, dear sirs, uh, I kickstarted this game, and here's my order number, and blah, blah, blah. And they emailed me back, and they were like, yeah, you, you said on your uh, Kickstarter campaign that you wanted to wait until the second wave. And oh. I have so I checked a wrong box somewhere. I didn't understand something, but I clearly didn't because I am way too impatient to have intentionally decided to to wait until the second wave. Uh, so I just put it out of my memory. And you know, you've mentioned it. One of my good board gaming friends has it, and she keeps talking about it. Uh, and they just recently announced it's not because they were they were, the second wave, which I should be getting, was supposed to be here. I think in December and in January, and now it's pushed back to April. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so I, I'm super psyched about Seventh Continent, and that's one of the reasons that I buckled and bought Discover Lands Unknown, is I was like, yeah, this will be a, an, a substitute for that kind of exploration survival thing. Uh, yeah. So, so have you actually played your copy of Seventh Continent? I have. I've played it uh, a few times. Uh, oh, I'm so I jealous. really enjoy it. The, mm -hmm. It's another one of those games where you need to really get the same group together each time. Yeah, or, or, uh, or if you're playing it solitaire. Or solitary, right? Yep. Um, I've been trying to do it with the same group, and we've played a handful of times. But I, I do really like it. Um, some people have trouble with the fact that it doesn't have a structured turn order. You know, it's kind of like, it's it's almost like a storytelling thing, right? We're gonna decide, oh, I'm gonna go over here and search this, or, but it's not. You take your turn. I, you take your turn. Just do, do you mean just in terms of the turn order when players go? Like, is it like if four of us are playing a game and I can go first one turn, but I can go last on another turn? Is it like or that you, simple, or is there something more loosey goosey? It's even looser than that. You don't have to take a turn at all. You just, you know, everyone is. You have to decide when you want to do things because sometimes it might be someone needs to go over here and look for a resource, and someone's going over here and look for something else, and you meet up. Uh, but there's mechanics to try to get you to stay together. Uh, basically, it's less movement points to move 
as a group than it is to uh-huh. split all up. And it is very much a game about time because you're uh, you're burning through this deck, which eventually will run out and then the game's over. So, so each player then should be doing things to advance everyone rather right. than just sitting and waiting to see what happens. I guess is the idea. Right. But yeah, I ran into at least one player that had trouble with the fact that you know, when's it my turn? Well, right, right. Whenever, you, whenever you think you can do something that's going to contribute <laughs> to us getting out of this island. So, uh, well, yeah, I'm super. I'm really looking forward to that, and I'm going to now try not to think about it again. <laughs> they they also had a printing issue with some of the cards being darker than others. Do, was that a problem for your copy? Um, I noticed it. I didn't point it out to anyone else, and no right. one no one said anything. And I know they're they're going to send replacements with yeah, the, yeah. the second wave. So yeah, so uh, that's one of the things too where. Uh, I, I sometimes I, I get a little irked when people point it out because if I if I'm not paying attention I might not notice something like that but once someone points it out I can't help but see it every time yep. <laughs> like it stands exactly. out for me <laughs> yeah, so very true uh, and I just realized Mike I'm super slow on the uptake Railroad Inc like like incorporated INC like I know it's spelled I N K but it's a play on I N C that just right. now hit yep. me all right. I get it now. Very cute. <laughs> All right, so those are some things that we have played. Uh, what about things that we intend to play before we record next time in two weeks? Uh, what is uh, on top of your to-be-played roster, Mike? So on Friday, uh, we're planning on playing Gloomhaven. Um, I haven't played that in probably six months. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm kind of looking forward to getting that back out. And you have a consistent group? Um, this is. There's two people who have not played it. Um, but this group should be consistent. So I think we're just going to start over. Um, most people don't remember what they did anyway. Right. <laughs> so. Do you have that game, Tom? I do, and um, I, I admire it, and I want to like it. But I I had an issue. I, I don't know if I'm just dumb, but I had a, an issue with the difficulty level and just kept getting everyone exhausted. And I've played maybe five scenarios in it before boxing it up and thinking I, I'll come back to this later. Um, but I, I love the variety amongst the characters. Uh, yeah, it's it's a, it's not an easy game, you know, the whole mechanic yeah. of deciding what cards you're going to use and you're going to lose for the rest of the game and, you, can, you, you know, which ones you can cycle back. It's There's a lot of strategy around how you're going to go through it. And uh, a lot of times by the time you get to the big end boss in the last room, you got almost nothing left. <laughs> So. Which is which I find hugely discouraging and kind of counter to the way a lot of these RPGs work, where you get more and more powerful as you play. You get more cool stuff, and you level up your spells, you tune your deck better, you know, like Mage Knight or whatever. Uh, Gloomhaven is the exact opposite of that, and so I always feel like I'm playing a game where my super powerful heroes run out of gas by the time they're supposed to do the most difficult fight in the scenario, and I just found that hugely discouraging. And I guess I just have to realize it's a it's a pretty tight deck management puzzle. Like I have to right. approach it like that rather than a game about uh, my characters being badass. Uh, and I and I think that gets mitigated the more you play because you know you get rewards as you go on with new cards in your right. deck, and uh, you get to start stacking the randomized deck right. more in your favor. I love that idea, by the way. I love I the way too. that you're seeding those. Yeah. Yeah, no, you know, rather than have dice, you're starting to tip the randomness towards you. Yeah. So I, the way I think it's going to play out, I don't know until I get further, is that, you know, when I'm 10, 15 scenarios in, you know, I will won't have a problem making it to last from the dungeon, still having stuff, some stuff left. Right. And I've heard too one of my complaints that because uh, I've gotten in like forum arguments with people where, uh, I, I, 
I think people can be defensive of board games in a way that they aren't necessarily with other things because board games are uh, they're, they're, they're a cost investment. They're a huge time investment. Uh, it can be hard to get people together, a group together. So I think board gaming time is a lot of times more precious than, say, movie watching time or video gaming time because it's harder to come by. Uh, so I think people feel more invested in board games in a way that they might not about video games. So I've gotten into some you know, light but um, uh, intensive arguments about Gloomhaven and how, how I don't like it. And one of my complaints about, yeah, every scenario you get to this powerful boss and you're completely out of gas, one of the things that people have told me, and I'm, I, I hope this is the case and I look forward to discovering it, is that not all the scenarios are like that. It's, it's not always that it gets uh, here's the room with the basic enemies and then the next room with the slightly more powerful enemies and then the last room with some badass boss. That All the scenarios don't scale that way, which I think would go a long way to resolving how uh, I feel about the exhaustion mechanic. Sure. Um, so, And the big issue I have, frankly, with Gloomhaven is I, I, I love, like, I have no problem with Ameritrash fiddliness and all those little decks of cards, but good lord, it takes forever to set up. Yes, it does. <laughs> it's a good hour before you're ready to play. Exactly. Once, yeah, exactly. The time to between picking up the box and then getting it on the table, it, ready to play, is pretty considerable. Yeah. Um, so, and I just kickstarted. Um, they had these player mats um, that I just got in yesterday, so that got me thinking about why we're going to play this week. Oh, for um, Gloomhaven. Yeah, these uh, neoprene mats that have a space to put all your cards and your little life counter section and. Looks kind of cool. So. I have never used a, a mat. I've never bought a mat, but I did uh, buy a mat as a gift for uh, someone this holiday season. And when I got the mat and I unrolled it and looked at it and then put it back, I, I looked at it and I was like, hey, you know, this is kind of cool. I can see why people would want one of these. <laughs> yeah, and uh, one of my wife's favorite games, um, Champions of Midgard. We have. Uh, oh, I love that too. Your wife, give your wife a high five from me. I will. <laughs> we have a, a neoprene mat that was a Kickstarter version of it. Um, that has all the expansion boards kind of built <gasps> in. Oh, because the, the boards like sit off on the side. Right. And that, so this oh is, man. It's just a big mat with everything on it. I, oh. That's no. a really really nice surface to play that game on. Where can I get one of those? I don't. They actually right on their website. I think they're selling them right now. I might have to look into uh, that because I I, I have all the expansions? I have all the expansions and they're kind of you know it's rudimentary where you set up this board over here and it 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 doesn't flow as well with these separate boards uh, naturally because they added them after the fact but uh, I would totally get a mat for that. Did you see there's a sequel to that coming up? No, I didn't. Yeah, the, it... uh, a Kickstarter. It's called Reavers of Midgard. A lot more. Uh, uh, there's a lot more of the ship aspect. Ah, because that that's one of the mechanics I like is how. Uh, how different it is dealing with the different monsters, whether you go across the mountains to get those guys or sailing your ship out and having to feed your Vikings. Uh, I like that a lot. Okay. But so it being a Kickstarter, this is something that won't be out till 2020. Um, I think it's supposed to be the end of this year. Okay. I, uh, this, that was the first one I backed at the retailer level, which is kind of exciting. So. Ah, so, and it's called Reavers of Midgard, huh? Yep. All right. All right. Good. So uh, uh, the other the other thing I'm playing soon is uh, which I've never played before is Dinosaur Island. Yeah, yeah. So I just picked that up. Um, it's certainly colorful. It is. It has. It gets fairly good ratings on Board Game Geek. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, of course I have six people playing that day, so I got the expansion right away. So you know we're gonna play a brand new game and expansion all at once. <laughs> well, I 
I mean, it's sort of like with uh, Railroad Inc. is I would want all of the options for expansions. When I went in for Champions of Midgard, like Champions of Midgard, someone spoke highly of it. I don't normally care for worker placement. And he was like, you know, you should maybe give this one a shot. So I naturally bought it and all the expansions because you want all, <laughs> you want everything. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, so Dinosaur Island is – and that is – it's like super neon colorful. That's the one I'm thinking of, right? Yep. Yep. Where you're building the little paddocks for your dinosaurs and hot dog stands and – it's kind of a mix of, you know, it's worker placement to some degree, and then there's some random elements of uh, guests that can mess up your park. I now, other roles, but it looks interesting. Uh, can you think of another game that has that palette? Hmm. This Not might off, be this might be really obscure. Not off the top of my head. Uh, there's a company called Goblinko that does these weird comics, uh, and they published a game called Dungeon Degenerates. Have you heard of this? I have not. Is that recent? Or? Uh, yeah, within the last couple of years or so. Okay. Uh, and it's super crazy, like bright neon, just weird, I think kind of ugly, but that's the appeal, weird, ugly artwork. Um, but uh, it, uh, it looks like Dinosaur Island is the sleeker, 80s, sexier version of that kind of neon artwork. Yeah. Okay. So... All right, so Dinosaur Island and Gloomhaven for you. Yep. Uh, let's see, what am I looking for? So I my current obsession is this uh, uh, game called Apocrypha, which is a solid... It's, it's from the Pathfinder Adventure Card Game System. It's the next iteration of that. So I, I'm wanting to finish up time with that because it's completely hogging my solitaire table right now. So there's a bunch of solitaire games that I want to get to the table. And specifically, this one... I find super intriguing. So I mentioned Metal Dawn and how the pattern for a lot of solitaire games is, hey, a bunch of stuff comes on the board. See if your characters can hold it back. And you drive the stuff back and you either win or lose. You know, if you lose, you get overrun. Like that's the basic pattern for a lot of solitaire games. And that's fine. That works. But I'm always intrigued to find new patterns for solitaire gaming. And this struck me as a new pattern. And I'm really intrigued by it. And I bought it and was slightly disappointed to discover it has a campaign structure where you first start out playing a very simple streamlined scenario, and that instructs you to open a new deck of cards and add it. And then you play the next scenario, and you open more cards, and eventually you've got all 12 scenarios, and you've got the full game, and you can go back and replay it, and you can do skirmishes. Um, but the pattern on this game, and it's called, oh shoot, Dawn of the Peacemakers, did I get that right? Or am I mixing it up with Metal Dawn? Hold on, I have to... Dawn of the Peacemakers. <laughs> Is that a thing? Yes, good. Okay, I wanted to make sure I wasn't confusing it with Metal Dawn. I didn't realize I had two Dawn games. So the pattern in Dawn of the Peacemakers is that there are two sides fighting each other. The uh, birds and the ocelots. It has a kind of an animal, cutesy animal kingdom vibe like, like Root. Um, uh, the birds and the ocelots are at war with each other, and one of them is going to wipe the other out. And it's a tactical kind of war game, but each of the pieces is driven by a little deck of cards. It's an AI that plays against itself, and if you play the cards out, one side will win against the other. Very straightforward. You, however, play peacemakers. And your little characters are adventurers in the context of this tactical war game. And what you're trying to do is keep either side from wiping the other side out. You're trying to balance them out to where they both reach a kind of a stalemate and will then sue for peace. Uh, so 
I, I love this idea of because because I've never really seen anything like that. I've never that that's a pattern that sounds completely new to me. Is if one side's winning, you want to stop it. It's almost like playing. Uh, in a three-player game where the other two players, you don't want either of them – like like the other two players fighting each other, you let one of them get weaker, uh, and then they both weaken each other and you win. So you watch that dynamic of who's winning. But in this case, you don't want either of them to win. You want to help the guy who's losing, and then if that helps him too much, you help the other guy. Uh, so, yeah, so, yeah, I don't quite know what to make of it because when it arrived – the first scenario is super straightforward. Even the characters, Mike, like you pick, there's four little animal characters who are the eponymous peacemakers. Uh, they're, they're little boards, their stats, they're wrapped up in an, in an envelope. Like it says, okay, if you want to play this character, open this envelope. So everything is closed up, which is to me super intriguing, but I don't really have a sense for where it's going until I get it to the table and try these first couple of scenarios and break open the components and the envelopes and the, the decks of cards and whatnot. Um, so, I mean, is it like a legacy game or they just seal stuff until you're ready for it and then it's forever... So I suck at using terms correctly. Does a legacy game imply uh, permanently changing something or marking on something? Um, generally, yes. Uh, but you know, if it's you know after your fourth scenario, where you're going to open this deck of cards, and then those cards are forever in the game. That would be legacy. Uh, but if it's just an optional rule, not so much. Because I, I yes, it's a legacy game, but it's not. So so I think of some. Legacy games like Pandemic uh, Legacy, Season 1 and 2, the idea is you play the 12 scenarios, and then you might as well throw it in the trash. There's nothing you can do with sure, it. Sure, sure, uh, yeah. But, but I guess l there are certain Legacy games that aren't that way. Like, like you, you – oh, of course. You uh, got – and I haven't played it yet, but you got me uh, to try – to buy. I guess I haven't tried it yet. Uh, Betrayal Legacy. And oh, the yeah. idea there, and part of what sold me on it, was you play through it, you unlock the stuff, and then you've got a copy of a different – of a new game you can play. Like it's not – slammed shut uh presumably because i guess you haven't broken things or i, I don't, but the yeah. idea is even after you play the scenarios now it's replayable you have your own new copy of the game uh and that's every bit of legacy game as well right mm -hmm. yes yeah right so so in that case uh yes it's a legacy game yeah it, I, board game geek doesn't uh categorize it as a legacy game. okay I, I i'm looking at the comments here or the description it says you can play it with a game master Instead of just as a cooperative, that's interesting. Oh, right, right. That's like a variant, and, and that's if you want to do like skirmishes, yeah. Um, okay. How would that – yeah, I don't know how that would work, but uh, yeah. So I'm looking forward to trying it, but I have to get Apocrypha off of my table, and that's like sprawling there now. Uh, and that that's a solitaire game as well. I think of it. It's co-op slash solitaire. There's no yep. hidden information or anything. Um, uh, here's how bad I am with terminology. Uh, do you know the – pathfinder adventure card game uh i do i've not played it extensively but I, is, I have it is that that's not is that a deck builder um here, here you go is magic the gathering a deck builder it's not what you deck builders are games like dominion where you're purchasing cards to use immediately um magic the gathering you build a deck but it's yeah not. so it's a deck builder <laughs> <You just> <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, you're you're absolutely right because I've gotten I've put my foot in it before talking about deck builders and bringing up like Magic the Gathering and Pathfinder Adventure Card Game because right. because I built decks for it. Of course, it's a deck builder, but but I realize that's not the way that the the the, the term is is used. One of, one of my friends that we play board games with is constantly griefing me, calling anything where you put a piece on the board. He's like, look, it's a worker placement game. This guy works, he does things. I put him on the board. I'm like, no, that's not worker placement. Uh, so funny. So let's see. The the other thing that I'm hoping to play uh, is, um, so do you know who Ryan uh, Lockat is? L A U K A T. Think so he's done games called uh, Above and Below or Far and Away. They're, oh they're, yeah, yeah, and they're they're I've, I've not played them, but I they're at my store. And they're 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 lovely and they look light and kind of lyrical and cute. Um, uh, and so he just released one called Empires of the Void Two, which is not like that sounds that sounds dire and dark, and it's not really. It's uh, it's. It's it's also kind of light and cute, but it's a space 4x kind of game with asymmetrical factions, and you set up a board of the galaxy, and it's got diplomacy and conquest. Uh, and actually, for a Ryan Lockhat game, it looks kind of uh, uh, on the heavy side, which is fine by me. Um, so that's the thing that I'm looking forward to getting out uh, when we play board games uh, later this week. Uh, yeah, and I love. Uh, I love uh, board games that seem to have uh, a sense of lore behind them that you have to sort of figure out with uh, by, by playing. Like each of these asymmetrical sides, it doesn't necessarily have different rules, but they have different things they can do, better or worse. And some of them have even their own specific powers that they can use, but you might not use any, in any given game. It's like tech trees. Um, so, so starting out, they're pretty straightforward, but as you push down a tech tree, you can make each side play more differently. Uh, and there are the little planets that you put out, and if you conquer a planet for victory points, that's one thing. But if you play a diplomatic game and put little influence tokens on it, I don't think you're getting victory points, but what you are getting is a unique power from that planet. Uh, so it looks like one of those games that each time you play, whichever faction you play, can have dramatically different powers based on with whom you ally and what you do on the tech tree. Uh, I love that sort of exploratory asymmetry. Yeah, that looks cool. I'm looking at the pictures now. It reminds me of like Twilight Imperium or Eclipse or one of those games. Exactly, but but with much more of that uh, of Ryan Lockhart's uh, sort of lighter, whimsical touch. It's not quite as crunchy, even though it's called Empires of the Void. It's not quite as dark, I, I think. Uh, so yeah, that's the thing I'm hoping to get to the table. Okay. All right. So. Uh, uh, maybe next week we'll talk about a little Gloomhaven, a little Dinosaur Island, uh, a little Dawn of the Peacemakers, and some Empires of the Void, too. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. I am Tom Chick. I've been here with Mike Pullman, and we'll see you guys in two weeks. Cheers.